Okay, so um, last week we were in John chapter 19 and we were thinking about the burial of Jesus, his body laid in a tomb uh, in a garden not far from the place where he was crucified. This week, as we move into chapter 20, uh, we've got an empty tomb and we've got the first resurrection appearances. Before we read the passage, let me just give you a heads up on some of the themes I'd like to touch on. Uh, we have, of course, the first evidence for the resurrection. That's uh, so important, an empty tomb, and we've got eyewitness testimony. Uh, we've got some examples of love and devotion that we'll um, have a think about. We've got the beginning of a new relationship with the Lord Jesus, something very different to anything the disciples had experienced before. Uh, we have the first true believer of the gospel and linked to that we're also given some insights into how he believed uh, and the process that all believers and disciples go through not just when they first get saved but also as we mature spiritually so they're the themes that we're going to be um, touching on let's read the passage now so uh, John chapter 20 and we're looking at the first 18 verses Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they put him. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from scriptures that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they've put him. At this, she turned round and saw Jesus standing there. But she did not realise that it was Jesus. He asked her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it that you are looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've put him and I'll get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned towards him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news. I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. So that's the passage that we're looking at today. 
Before we look to see what we can learn from this passage, I want to get one thing out of the way. And I think we need to do this if we're going to look at the passage honestly. Something we should do whenever we read the Bible, of course. And I'm talking about our understanding of what we know and what we don't know, about what happened, what was said, and who was involved. It's something which I think is both important and also not important. And I'll explain um, what I mean by that. The story of that first resurrection day is obviously very important. At least certain aspects of the story are important, the things that we're gonna to touch on today. But when it comes to some of the details of the story, for reasons that we don't understand, the accounts in each of the gospels are significantly different from each other, which makes it difficult to know exactly what actually happened. But if those details were important, I think the gospels would be, would be more aligned. And I'm not just talking about things that one writer has chosen to include and others haven't, and, and there are some of them, but there are also differences between accounts of the same thing. And whilst people have often speculated on why we have these differences and how they can exist without being contradictory, honestly, we just don't know. For example, John says it was just Mary Magdalene who went to the tomb, but Matthew says there was one other person. And Luke lists several women, and so does Mark, but his list is different to Luke's. We read last week that Joseph and Nicodemus wrapped the body and applied the spices, a huge amount of them. And as we just read, there's no mention of Mary bringing spices, and that would make sense if John thought that the spices had already been applied. But the other Gospels say that the body had only been wrapped. And it was the women who brought the spices on that first day of the week. John tells us that Mary didn't look into the tomb until after she came back from telling the disciples. But Luke and Mark have the women going straight in and meeting an angel inside the tomb. Mary also says the women met an angel, but um, he says it was outside before they went in. John has Jesus meeting Mary Magdalene on her own. Matthew says he met the whole group of women as they came away from the tomb. And Luke doesn't mention any meeting uh, with the women uh, at all, which is not a contradiction in itself, um, but an unusual omission, given the importance of eyewitness testimony. And just one more example, John says, that Mary told the disciples. And likewise, Luke and Matthew say the women told the disciples, despite being afraid. But Mark says, at least in the manuscripts that are included in our official text, that because they were afraid, they told no one at all. So it's surprising that the records of such an important sequence of events are so different. But like I said a few weeks ago about the different records of Peter's denials, if we accept the plenary inspiration of scripture, and that's the idea that every word of the original writings was inspired by God in such a way that we can say every bit of the Bible is actually God's word, then we have to give the text the benefit of the doubt. And by faith, we have to say that somehow these four accounts must all be true. Now, many people have tried to put the four Gospels together into a single story, 
even as far back as the second century when the New Testament was, was uh, first being established. But the fact remains, we have four gospels and they each tell us something about that amazing first day. And the differences we trust are not important. So getting that out of the way, let's think now about those five themes that I mentioned at the beginning. And I think there's something really lovely um, to find in each of these. Let's start with the evidence for the resurrection. As we've been thinking throughout this series, the focus of John's gospel is presenting the case for Christ, why we should believe. And in any court where the case for, for anything is presented, we expect to have other evidence, don't we? So here's the evidence that John highlights. Number one, the tomb was empty. The reason why that's important is because the authorities have taken such great care to ensure that the tomb would stay occupied, that no one could tamper with the body. All the gospels refer to the stone uh, which was rolled in front of the entrance and a stone big enough to cover the whole entrance would be a very big and heavy stone indeed. I can't remember which one of the other gospels it is, but one of the gospels actually says the stone was very, very big. Uh, Matthew also tells us that there were guards who were told to make the tomb as secure as possible. And that included putting a seal on the tomb. And a seal was like an official warning that if anyone tampered with it, and if anyone tampered with the, the tomb that was protected by the seal, that they'd be in the most serious uh, trouble. I, I read somewhere that, uh, uh, and I'm not sure where I read this, that the penalty for breaking a Roman seal in these circumstances would be execution. Now, I'm not 100% sure about that, but at the very least, it was very serious indeed. In fact, the significance of the empty tomb, I think, is seen most clearly in, in Matthew's gospel, because it says that the authorities were worried that the disciples might try to steal the body and that they would then claim that the empty tomb was evidence for the resurrection, which of course it is. And that's why they wanted the security in place until after the third day. And that's why the guards were bribed to say that the disciples had stolen the body while, while they were asleep. I think it's strange that John doesn't mention all that um, about the guards and the bribe, because I think it would be very strong evidence for his case. But then we know that John seems to prefer to rely on eyewitnesses which is the second strand of evidence I wanted to look at. Um, he's telling us quite simply that the first of many eyewitnesses were Mary and two other disciples, and that they, they each had an authentic story to tell about their own personal experience, what they had seen with their own eyes. And I'm sure you've heard this before, but it's interesting that, um, John presents Mary as the first eyewitness at a time when the testimony of a woman didn't really carry an awful lot of weight. In fact, Luke says that most of the disciples dismissed the report of the women as nonsense. So if John had wanted to manipulate the truth to make his case stronger, he probably would have chosen the great Peter or some other bloke to be the first person to meet Jesus. But John just tells us how it was in the court of 
the case that he's presenting, John gives us the truth and nothing but the truth. So we've got evidence for the resurrection, vitally important. Um, but another theme I think um, we have is love and devotion. And we see it to some extent in Peter and the other disciple and their eagerness to get to the tomb. But I think Murray is the best example here for a few reasons. In chapter 19, we know that Murray was at the cross. Um, and now early in the morning, while it was still dark, it says, she wants to be near her Lord again and she goes to the tomb. Now, whether or not she brought any spices um, or as Matthew says, if she was just there to look at the tomb, the point is that she went and she was overwhelmed with grief, wasn't she? It says that tears are the price that we pay for love. And I think it's clear in Mary's tears just how much she loved the Lord Jesus. We can see how distraught she was when she thought that their enemies had taken the body, probably imagining them doing all sorts of terrible things to it. But then we have the encounter, um, an encounter with Jesus where Mary, with her eyes full of tears, fails to recognize him until he calls her by name. And then we have her response in that most respectful and personal of terms, um, the Aramaic word Rabboni. Uh, it's different from Rabbi, uh, which just means teacher. Rabboni means a little bit more. It means my teacher. This was a personal relationship, uh, just as we should all have with the Lord. And finally, and here's a speculation warning, um, we have Mary throwing her arms around the Lord Jesus. I'm speculating because only Matthew talks about the women having any contact with Jesus. Um, Matthew says that they grabbed hold of his feet. But I think there was a hug. Because in verse 17, Jesus says, do not hold on to me. And whilst there are different interpretations for verse 17, I think it's reasonable to assume that Mary did do that most natural thing. She embraced him. And that brings me to the third theme, the change in the relationship that Jesus would have from now on with all of his followers. And that applies to us, of course. Now he was returning to heaven. You see, during his life, Jesus lived in many ways as an ordinary man, didn't he? And that, and that included his friendships and his um, family relationships. And, and I'm sure that involved many a hug. We have him on occasions surrounded by crowds pressing up against him. We've got Mary, the sister of Lazarus, pouring perfume on his feet and wiping and kissing them. We've got the upper room of a disciple leaning against Jesus as he reclined at the table. We've got the parable of the lost son that Jesus told, a loving father embracing the, father, the, um, the, the son who, uh, when he returned. An example and an expression of love, which, as I say, I think the Lord Jesus was familiar with. And so I think it would be quite a natural thing for Mary to want to embrace Jesus when she 
saw that he was alive. But something had changed. And Jesus was telling Mary that although he was still on earth, his work on earth was nearly done. He was returning to heaven. And although he had become an ordinary man in order to complete his work on earth, now he was being glorified. He would take his place at the right hand of his father in heaven. And this is the point. It would no longer be appropriate for his followers, no matter how much they loved him, to be so familiar, to just give him a hug. I think we can also see how things are changed in the way he emphasizes in verse 17, the difference between my father and your father, my God and your God. He didn't say our God and father because our relationship with the father is totally different to his, isn't it? He and the father are one. And that was true before his death and resurrection, of course. But it seems to me that the emphasis here is a bit of a reminder that he was far more than just a man. And I guess the point for us to be reminded of is that whilst we can sing what a friend we have in Jesus and we can think of Jesus as a friend of sinners and, and Jesus himself used the term friend to describe his relationship with his disciples, that doesn't mean that we can just treat him like an ordinary friend, not even a best friend, because he is the image of the invisible God. He is the one who holds the universe in his hands. He's not our mate. He's our Lord and master. Now, for the sake of time, I'm going to just take my last two themes together. And that's the first believer and a little insight into the meaning and development of faith. Who was the first believer? I'm using that term in the way that we use it today as Christians, because there were many in the Old Testament, of course, who believed in God and in the promise of a Messiah. And there were many that we read about in the Gospels who believed that Jesus was the Messiah, even though they totally misunderstood what that actually meant and what he'd come to do. But in verse eight, we have an unnamed disciple who goes into the tomb. He looks at how the linen cloths are laid out maybe had a flashback to some of the things that Jesus had said previously, and it says he saw and believed. Now, bearing in mind the purpose of John's gospel, we keep referring to this, don't we? But we find it actually at the end of chapter 20, um, that John's gospel is so that we might believe that Jesus is the son of God and have life in his name. We can be sure that the author is not using that word in verse eight to mean anything less. He can't be saying that this disciple just believed what Murray had said about the body being taken. This disciple was the first true believer of the new day of grace. The first one to believe in the resurrection, even though, as it says in verse nine, they still didn't understand how that all fitted in with God's eternal purposes. But I like that comment in verse nine. They still did not understand from scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Uh, I like that comment because it shows that we don't have to understand everything to be saved. Simple belief in who Jesus is and what he's done for us is enough to have life in his name. Actually, we do get a little more insight into the basis of belief when we look at, if you don't mind me doing this, 
if we look at the three different Greek words which are used to describe the way the disciples looked at the evidence. In verse five, it says that the unnamed disciple just looked into the tomb. And the Greek word for looked is blepo. It suggests a casual look. Then Peter goes into the tomb in, in verse six, and it says that he saw the strips of linen lying there. And the word for saw is theorio, a word which suggests a long, careful look. In other words, we've got Peter stirring at the strips of linen, trying to make sense of it all. And then the other disciple goes all the way in, and it says in verse eight, he saw and believed. And the word this time for looking, for seeing, is oreo, which means to see with understanding. So like I said, maybe because of things he remembered Jesus saying, the other disciple saw what he saw, and unlike Peter, so it seems, he realised immediately that Jesus was alive. I think this parallels to some extent how many people come to faith. It starts with a casual interest, it develops into a hard, careful look, and that might involve scepticism and it might involve challenge, but at some point, when the evidence adds up and the explanations are given, a person sees with understanding. And that's our job, isn't it? To help with that process, to be ready to give an answer, to give explanations, to respond to challenges and queries, and to help a person see with understanding. And I think that process can also be true of many other aspects of God's revelation to us, not just the great doctrines of truth, but also our appreciation of what God actually wants us to do with our lives. So maybe I should change slightly what I said before about saving faith. We need more than just a simple belief in who Jesus is and what he's done for us. We need to believe and understand. Even if it's only a little, we need to understand what he's done for us, not just to know it. And if we understand more of the holiness of God, we'll understand more of the seriousness of sin, won't we? And if we understand more about that, we'll understand more what it costs God to save us. And if we understand more of what it cost, we'll understand more of the immense love that God has for each one of us, that he should give his son to die in our place. And if we believe with understanding, as I say, even if it's just a little, although it's something we progress in as we mature as Christians, our repentance for sin will be more sincere, we'll be more grateful for God's gift, and we'll be more willing to commit our lives to following the Lord Jesus, won't we? So uh, I'm nearly done. Who was that first believer? It was John, wasn't it? Well, that's the popular view. And I, I, I think it's likely, but to be honest, there's no clear evidence to support that, only a, a variety of theories. And we could be sure, fairly sure it was one of the, the 12 because we seem to have the same unnamed disciple um, in the upper room and he's mentioned elsewhere in John's gospel, but actually we're not told. And it just goes back to what I was saying at the beginning. There are lots of things in the Bible which are not as clear as we'd like them to be. There are anomalies that we'd prefer not to be there. 
There's a lack of instruction on things that we'd like more instruction on. And there are mysteries still to be revealed, probably not until we reach heaven. So we should always read our Bibles with the utmost respect for the text itself. And that means that we don't ignore things that we don't like, even if they are anomalies. And we don't bend the meaning just to fit what we already think. And we don't read too much into the text when it isn't clear. And we don't fill in the gaps with our own ideas, even if it is just the name of an, an, an uh, ugh, get my teeth, teeth around, even if it is just an anonymous disciple that we'd like to think of as John. That's a lot of don'ts, isn't it? Let me finish with a do. And that's for each of us more often to go beyond the casual reading of the Bible, the casual look, to have an appetite more for long and careful looks. Because if we do that with God's help and like the unnamed disciple, we'll be able to see God's will for us more and more and to see it with understanding. Thank you. Thank you, David.